The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning at verse 23. We'll be reading through verse 35 this morning. The word of the Lord. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest, and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Wounds and dishonor will he get, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 27, we'll be reading through verse 30 this morning. I want to say something before I read this portion of God's Word in your hearing. As you know, the Sermon on the Mount in general is quite challenging to us. And I believe that these words from Jesus are perhaps the hardest words in the entire Sermon on the Mount for us to hear if we take them seriously and apply them to our lives. Beloved, that's precisely what we're called to do in the power of the Holy Spirit, is to take God's word and apply it to our lives. But I want to remind you that what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. That means these hard words are also good words for us to hear. And part of what that message is, is that you are not a prisoner to your past, nor in fact are you even a prisoner to your present. Because Jesus Christ came into this world to make all things new, even you. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 27, the word of our God. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members 
than that your whole body go into hell. Please keep your place here as this will be the primary portion of God's word for the morning sermon. One of Satan's greatest lies is that you need to choose between holiness and happiness. These words from Lake Duncan are very practical. They're worth you memorizing. One of Satan's greatest lies is that you need to choose between holiness and happiness. And there is nowhere where our culture more amplifies that lie than when it comes to sexual purity, particularly in our hearts and in our minds. If I had a dollar for every time someone had told me or I'd heard this spoken in my presence, it's okay to look so long as you don't touch. We'd be able to build a beautiful stone church in Salem and still have plenty of money left over to spend on other things. But, beloved, that's not true. It's wrong. It's a lie. It's a lie from Satan straight from the pit of hell, and it smells like smoke. And what makes this lie so tempting is the related lie that you need to choose between holiness and happiness. So Satan comes up and he whispers in your ear the very same thing he said to Eve. God is holding out on you. I mean, you'd be so much happier if you just looked and then looked again and kept on looking, turning those images over in your mind and in your heart, right? Don't you want to be happy? That's the promise. But, beloved, it's a lie. Part of what Satan is going to tell you, of course, your culture is going to tell you this as well, and so is your flesh. So long as you look and don't act on your lusts, nobody is getting hurt. Right? Well, no. That is all horribly and destructively wrong. See, your Father in heaven is not holding out on you. As the Lord tells us through the prophet Jeremiah, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And therefore, the fundamental question before us this morning is not actually the details of where we draw the line of what is okay for you to look at and what you shouldn't be looking at. That is not the most basic question. The most basic question is, what are we thinking about our God? Do we believe Satan's lie that God is holding out on us, that he's a stingy God, that we would be happier if we didn't do things his way, that it would somehow go better for us? Or do we remember that our God is our loving Heavenly Father? Our God who loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die in our place. Jesus asks, which one of you, if he has a son and his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? See, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation 
or shadow due to change. And one of those perfect gifts is God's law. God's law is his gift to you. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. And more narrowly, one of the gifts that God gives us in his law is a call for us to pursue genuine purity in our hearts, a purity that God himself can see. The question is, how will we respond to this gift? This morning we're going to look at this portion of God's word under four main headings. First, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Second, put to death your sinful deeds and desires. Third, Jesus is calling you to a faithful future. He is not condemning you for a faithless past. And fourth, purity is not a self-help project. Uh, That's an awful lot, so let me give those to you again. First, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Second, put to death your sinful deeds and desires. Third, Jesus is calling you to a faithful future. He is not condemning you for a faithless past. And fourth, purity is not a self-help project. As you'll quickly realize, the first two points are the direct teaching of this passage. The second two points are applications of this passage in light of the rest of what God's word is telling us. We begin with the truth that as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Look at verses 27 and 28 with me. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Once again, the law which God gave on Mount Sinai really does forbid the physical act of adultery. Right? That is part of what God is getting at in the Ten Commandments. He bluntly commands, thou shalt not commit adultery. In fact, adultery is one of the few sins which is actually also a capital crime. That is, someone who was convicted of adultery under the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace would be stoned to death, which is a reminder of how important sexual purity is for us in our marriages and in our lives in general. Whether you're single, whether you're going to be single for the rest of your life, or whether, in fact, you are preparing for marriage in the future. God is making abundantly clear that sexual purity is important to him for his people. Nevertheless, the Lord has always cared about far more than simply an outward uh, mechanical conformity to his law. God's law was spiritual from the very beginning. It was intended to touch our hearts. For example, Psalm 24 asks this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? And you all know the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands refer to our activities. God is saying the person who behaves righteously by God's grace. But I want to draw your attention as this portion of God's word is doing this morning from Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount to the demand that we have pure hearts, 
That has always been God's intent. A pure heart refers to our thoughts and to our desires. As we saw when we looked at the previous passage, biblical law gives us patterns and examples. We are supposed to reason from those examples to all of the related activities, including the related activities of our hearts. Now, apparently, many Jewish people in Christ's day, not all of them, by the way, we have records of Jewish rabbis that did apply the spiritual nature of the laws against adultery to the hearts, but apparently many Jewish people in Christ's day were saying, we're just going to focus on the externals. And of course, that's very much true in our day as well, or we wouldn't have so many people saying it's okay to look so long as you don't touch. But against this popular oral tradition, Jesus bluntly declares, but I say to you, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now let's be careful about what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying that when a man sees a beautiful woman or a woman sees a good-looking man, that that's sin. Jesus is not saying that at all. He's talking about intent. And the ESV captures that quite well. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The issue in focus is one of purpose. It is lustful intent that Jesus has squarely within his sights. Now the commandment, of course, um, I should say this all the time, but if I say it occasionally, I think you'll remember it and apply it. These commandments are all reversible in gender, right? It's not as though only men can do this. If a woman looks at a man with lustful intent, she is committing adultery in her heart, just as when a man looks at a woman. Uh, just ordinarily, the Bible puts the, the guilt issue here on the man. But what's the big deal? What's the big deal so long as it all just remains a lustful intent. Well, here's an important truth. Please do not imagine that impurity in your heart is a victimless crime. Among other things, of course, it hurts you, but it actually hurts other people as well. When a man looks upon a woman with lust, or a woman looks on a man with lustful intent, that is a selfish act which objectifies the other person. It says that people of the other gender exist to please me rather than for me to love and to build up. Lustful intent is the very opposite of biblical love. Now, if you turn over lustful images in your mind, you are reprogramming the way that you think and changing the way that you will actually treat other people. Um, it's quite understandable that I do not normally quote from medical journals during sermons. But this morning I want to risk making a very short exception to this because I think this issue is important for us to grasp and it will help us think about how we think about our own hearts and minds. So here goes a very short quotation on neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity at its most basic level refers to the brain's ability to change. 
When you learn to ride a bike, your brain didn't just logically process the steps involved in riding a bike. Your brain literally physically changed itself into a brain for bike riding. It can mold and shape itself like Play-Doh as it responds to outside forces and experiences. When we engage in an activity, particularly a pleasurable activity, and particularly if it involves repetition and intense focus, our brains alter themselves so that they'll be better and more efficient at doing that activity the next time. That's why we say you don't, you don't forget how to ride a bike. Because the practice of doing it over and over again actually reprograms the way you think so you become good at it. But beloved, I want you to realize that looking at other people with lustful intent does the very same thing. Pornography does the very same thing. It's not just an isolated event. You're reshaping the way you think so it becomes easier to think in destructive ways and to have destructive relationships and harder and harder to think in a way that will lead to healthy relationships, to truly loving your wife as Christ loves and loves the church. Now, I'm going to make this application directly to men, but I trust that all the women here, with some minor modifications, are quite capable of applying this very same truth to yourselves. Men, you cannot simultaneously love pornography and love your wife. It's that simple. You cannot simultaneously love pornography and love your wife. Because pornography is selfish. It's the very opposite of love. And here's the key truth. This is where I think people get caught up because they want to kid themselves, but this is true. You can't simply flip back and forth between them either. You know, I had a little bit of dalliance here in the morning with some pornography, but tonight I'm going to love my wife. You're changing the way you see other people so that you are going to use them for your pleasure rather than love them for the glory of God. Both careful research and common sense make abundantly clear that if you objectify women in your thoughts, you will seek to use them rather than to nurture and love them throughout your life. Let me add here for you men who are young this morning, perhaps still in your teens or early 20s, and you have not yet ever been married. The place where you prepare to build a healthy relationship with your future wife is right now. Right? You, if you are engaging in lustful fantasies right now in your teens, you are preparing yourself to be ill-equipped to actually love the woman that God gives to you as a wife. I should add, by the way, for those of you who are single or going to remain single perhaps for the rest of your life, you actually face a particular difficulty here, a particular challenge in pursuing purity because it becomes easier to say, well, you know, I'm not hurting anyone else. But, beloved, Jesus is saying, that's not my call upon your life. And so you ought to seek God's grace that you would pursue true purity in your thoughts and in your heart as a single person. Pray to the Lord for wisdom for what that will look like. Does preparing for a tender, loving, and intimate relationship that you will enjoy for decades somehow sound like you're missing out? 
See, that's the lie, right? God is saying, my desire for you in your marriage, if you get married, and most of you either are or will get married, is that you would have a tender, loving relationship. Is preparing for that somehow missing out? No, it is not. That is so much better than what Satan is offering to you and what the world is offering to you. Let me say, by the way, to you while you're single now or whether you're single for the rest of your life, it's the same issue. Because if you engage in lustful thoughts now, as you talk to your sisters in Christ and your brothers in Christ, you will relate to them differently in a way that does not honor God the way that it should. Where you should have close, loving relationships where you're seeking their good rather than using them, even in your mind, for your own pleasure. Loving your wife or your future wife demands that you take advantage of the neuroplasticity of your brain through the disciplined practice of feeding it that which is noble and lovely and good and starving it of everything which the Lord our God condemns. My dear brothers and sisters, do not kid yourself at this point. Do not lie that your illicit lust are just private thoughts and that somehow they aren't who you really are. God himself says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. How serious a matter is sexual purity in your life? Listen to the words of Jesus Christ, the one who loves you so much that he gave his life for you. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. See, with these words, Jesus is reminding us that this sin of lustful intent not only destroys human relationships, but it's incompatible with a loving relationship with the living God. Right? Your eternity is at stake in whether, by God's grace, you choose to trust Jesus and therefore increasingly, not perfectly, but increasingly put his word into practice or whether or not you say, my way, and I remind you that my way is the song that they sing in hell. Our Lord's words are direct and they are to the point. Beloved, do not negotiate with your sin. Do not seek to manage your sin. As God says elsewhere in his word, put your sinful deeds and desires to death through the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you can't do it yourself. But with God's word and spirit, you are called to mortify your flesh, not to negotiate with it or to make it look respectable. When we consider the dramatic language that Jesus uses, it's quite clear that he is giving us a radical call to action. Now, it is important for us to point out that Jesus is not calling us to actually pluck out eyes or cut off hands. Um, for one thing, that would do nothing at all for your heart, right? Th those are just physical things. 
But they're very graphic images if you think about what it would be for you to lose a hand or to lose an eye. And Jesus is saying, this matter is that important. I am calling you as your Lord and Savior to take radical steps to pursue purity of heart. When it comes to pursuing sexual purity in your heart and mind, you are not, you are not engaged in some minor or inconsequential skirmish. You are engaged in a war that requires you to take radical and disciplined steps in the pursuit of absolute victory to the glory of God. Now, on the negative side of the equation, which, by the way, is what Jesus is talking about here, on the negative side of the equation, there are some obvious steps for us to take. As Jeffrey Gibbs puts it, the power of God's spirit extends down to controlling the muscles of the neck. The disciple of Jesus does not have to look. He or she can turn away. That, that sounds almost so simple in light of this, but it's really important. Jesus is calling us to take practical steps. It's not spiritual to say, I'll look, but not let it bother me. The power of the Holy Spirit extends to our neck muscles. We can look away from those things we ought not to be looking at. And after all, isn't that precisely what Job says when he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes, but I would not look on a young girl with lust. How do we do this? Well, I'm going to be really blunt with you. If you have physical pornography in your house, throw it out. Do not make a plan to get rid of it over the next two to three weeks. Today, as soon as you go home, cut it out of your life. Throw it out. Now, the bigger problem for almost everyone in this room is not physical pornography. It's electronic devices. It's television which has made, in our culture, sexual images universally available. Now, I don't have a simple cookie-cutter solution for you in dealing with that, but I do have the words of Jesus Christ. If this is a problem for you, and it very well may be, it's a problem for many, many people, Jesus is saying take radical steps to cut it out of your life. Well, what might that look like? Well, think through what types of programs you're subscribing to. You know, you can cancel, you can actually cancel those programs on cable television. Here's a crazy radical thought. I'm not prescribing this to you. I don't know that this is the right thing for any of you to do. But it could be. You could live without cable television. Honestly, you can. And this applies to all areas of your life when you're getting together with people and you're exposing yourself to various things. There have been times in my life where I went to a movie with Christian friends of mine, and early in the movie, I got up and walked out of the theater because I was seeing things that I knew were not compatible with me having a pure heart. But beloved, I tell you to my shame, there are other times when I stayed. I knew I shouldn't have, and I did anyway. I just ask you to imitate those times in my life where by God's grace I was faithful, rather than imitating my remaining sins. And pray for your pastor. Pray for your elders. 
Pray for your parents and all those whom you love. Because this pursuit of a pure heart is a race that we will be running until the day the Lord calls us home. None of us here can check the box and say, done, I've got that covered. Pray for us. We need to take the negative side of the equation seriously because that's what Jesus is explicitly talking about in this passage. But the simple truth is is that you cannot push out something with nothing. You can't just have a vacuum that just says, here's the things I'm not going to do. And the good news is, is God has given you something, something so much better than these impure thoughts to fill your heart and your mind with. See, Christ is not simply calling us to avoid sexual impurity. He is calling us to cultivate hearts that are fixed on what is true, that which is good, and that which is beautiful. So in addition to the obvious call on your lives that you would meditate upon God's word in order to put it into practice, right, as Psalm 1 says, meditating upon God's word day and night, I want to give you a little bit of homework for this week. A simple challenge. It's not hard. Would you consider spending just three minutes a day, every day this week, praying with David? This is what you pray. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. And then just for a couple of minutes, pray about that in your own life, what it means for you to move to greater purity in your own heart and your own thoughts. And wait and see where the Lord leads you. That's my challenge for you this week. I do want to add an important word, however, to those of us who are growing older, lest we end up deceiving ourselves. Purity of heart is not the same thing as having your sex drive decline because you're getting older. Yes, my fellow older people, did you hear that? Purity of heart is not the same thing as having your sex drive decline because you are getting older. And there are two obvious applications for that. First of all, as you look at young people, particularly the young people in this church and your family members, you ought to look upon them with great compassion. You ought to be encouraging them to run the race. You ought to be praying for them. They need your prayers. What they do not need is your condemnation, nor mine. They need your encouragement as those who have gone before them, calling them to run the race of faith, to win. And second, please look in the mirror of God's law and remind yourself that it is quite possible to become a dirty old man or a dirty old woman while going to church. See, that's possible because as you get older, you get better and better at presenting one image to the world that is different from what's really going on in your heart. That is not God's call on your life. God's call on your life is that you would be a man of God all the way to your core. The Lord who loves you with an everlasting love is calling you to truth and purity at the core of your being. Beloved, truth and purity do not grow up in your life like weeds. The weeds are what needs to be pulled. Truth and purity grow up in your life when you cultivate them, when you plant the seed and you water it 
and you plead with God in his grace to cause the seed to grow. As the Apostle Paul instructed the Philippians, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. My fellow older Christians, this is God's word for you. And for those of you who are middle-aged and young, this is God's word for you too. You cannot beat something with nothing. Thankfully, the Lord has given us something so much better to fill our hearts and minds with than the world can even imagine. Well, I am one of those older men. And I can tell you from experience that one of the problems of just talking about sexual impurity in our hearts is that right away it leads people to feeling utterly condemned. There is a shame attached to sexual sins, whether they're committed out in the world or they're simply in the lustful desires of your own heart. And that can easily lead to you, not just other people, beating yourself up to the point of despair. It seems that Satan can lure many people with the lie that you have to choose between holiness and happiness. But Satan is also quite content to try to convince you that you are useless and worthless by causing you to dwell on your past sins or perhaps even your present sins. Thankfully, while Satan comes like a thief to kill and to steal and to destroy, Jesus comes that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. In this morning's passage, Jesus is calling you to a faithful future. He is not condemning you for a faithless past or even a sinful present. He is calling you to a faithful future instead. As I mentioned, one of the things about sexual sins, including our secret lusts, is that these sins produce a great deal of shame. Such shame can be utterly debilitating. Such shame can leave you feeling utterly disqualified for effective service within the kingdom of God. But here's the good news. Jesus did not come to rub your shame in. Jesus came to rub your shame out and to make you whiter than snow. Does the Lord really do that with such truly ugly sins as those that I've committed? Well, let's consider one of the most horrendous sins in all of human history. When Israel made the golden calf, you know, the living God had delivered his people with mighty signs and wonders out of Egypt out of the house of bondage. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He's giving his holy laws to Moses on Mount Sinai. And the people are down below creating a golden calf and worshiping contrary to God's law. I want you to think about this very personally from the standpoint of Aaron, as though you were in Aaron's shoes. Do you remember that Aaron actually led the people in this? He was a major conspirator in this project of making the golden calf. 
And the result of this was horrendous judgment. 3,000 Jews, his neighbors, his brothers and sisters, as it were, in the nation, were put to death because of this sin. Can you imagine the shame that Aaron must have felt after that? I mean, how could he ever look Moses in the face again? How could he look the people of God in the face again? He was the high priest. He was the person given this extraordinary role. And he had led people into idolatry. What did God do with Aaron? Hmm. The answer for Aaron is also the answer for you. God's grace is greater than your sin. Or as I put it just a moment ago, Jesus did not come to rub your shame in. He came to rub it out. Think about the blessing with which we close every morning worship service. Did you know it's called the Aaronic Blessing? That's after Aaron. The Aaronic Blessing. It's found in Numbers chapter 6. There, beginning at verse 22, we read these words. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord told Moses to speak to Aaron. To Aaron, the one who made the golden calf. And he said, I am not only going to bless you, Aaron, I am going to use you to pronounce my blessings on my people. Reed Lessing interprets the command like this. Aaron, tell my people that I am gracious and forgiving. I want it coming from your mouth, Aaron, because you are exhibit A. Now some of you, actually that's not right, let me correct myself. All of us, every single one of us needs to take this message to heart. Because of Jesus Christ, your guilt has been completely put away. In him you are whiter than snow. I know that most of you get that. But many of you still struggle with whether or not you can be used by God. You imagine that your past failures or your present failures mean you cannot be used greatly by God. But will you please remember what God did with Aaron? He used him to bless his people. Profoundly. Your sin is not the end of the story. In Christ, the most wretched sins from your past are not an obstacle to you, yes, to you, being profoundly used by God to bless other people in the present and in the future. That's what the Lord did for Aaron. And the living God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Beloved, Jesus Christ is calling you to a faithful future. He is not condemning you for a faithless past. Now, of course, the first part of that sentence is also important. Um, Jesus is, in fact, calling you to a faithful future. To sin because grace is abundant is the logic of the devil. It is not the logic of the Lord. 
God's grace is intended to lead us to holiness. See, Jesus did not give his life for you so that you could go on wallowing in sin. Jesus gave his life for us in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God's grace is intended to change the direction of your life. But you know, that very call there for us to keep in step with the Spirit reminds us that purity in our hearts is not a self-help project. Sanctification, after all, is the work of God's free grace. Now that's always true. Sanctification is always the work of God's free grace. I think we have a particular problem we're talking about sexual lusts and sexual sins. The very shame of them inclines us to want to keep it all to ourselves, to be isolated, either in getting other people to ignore our sin or imagining that we can fix it all by ourselves in our own power. But beloved, that will not work. You do not have the power to do this. You simply don't. Otherwise, there would have been no need for Jesus to come and no need for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon his church. So I have just five very short points, and then we are done. First, the God who loves you with an everlasting love in Jesus Christ already exhaustively knows all the thoughts and intentions of your heart. You are not keeping any secrets from the Lord by refusing to clearly and openly mourn over your sins, nor by failing to openly acknowledge that you need the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you are ever going to be pure within. So pour out your heart to him. Cry. You get that in the Psalms. Cry out to the Lord with everything that is in you, with the knowledge that your Father in heaven is unrelentingly for you. Second, remember that you cannot beat something with nothing. The Lord has given you his word so that you will meditate upon it day and night. It has been rightly said that this book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. And that means that a large part of pursuing purity of heart and ripping out the weeds that are in the way of that is done on your knees with an open Bible. God has given it to you. Let's take advantage of it. Third, the Lord has given you elders to help shepherd you in your spiritual life. Please do not imagine that any of your elders will be shocked to discover that you wrestle with sin. We will not be surprised. We could tell you that we have the same sorts of struggles in our own lives. We are here as God's gift to you to bless you in that struggle. We would much rather help you struggle on to victory than to leave you not struggling against sin at all, just giving in, or suffering in isolation. Fourth, in the everyday battle for purity, the Lord has put people in your life who love you. Don't dismiss what they have to say. They'll probably say it very gently, you know, because they love you about what maybe you should or should not be doing or looking at. Don't dismiss the words of people who love you. Let me say something in particular to those of you who are younger. How do you think of your parents? You you know when um, 
your parents say, you know, this isn't really appropriate for you to watch, you have two choices. You can say, thank you, Lord, for giving me godly parents who want to help me, who want to nurture me and shepherd me. Thank you. And then pursue what your parents are telling you with joy. That's option one. Or option two is to grumble about how your parents are so restrictive in your life and they are keeping you from doing something that all your friends are doing. The first option leads to wholeness and holiness and joy. And by the way, it also leads to everlasting life. That's not a small benefit. The second option leads to misery and death. And of course, that's not just for young people. That's for all of us. You have husbands and wives, friends, brothers, sisters in Christ who love you. Listen to what they have to say. God may be ministering to them to turn you to a better path. Fifth and finally, please remember that even these very hard words from Jesus are part of God's good news for you. Jesus Christ is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Part of that good news is that you are not a prisoner to your past or even a prisoner to your present. Jesus Christ has come to make all things new, even you. Amen.